Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. Today is going to be a bit of an unusual conversation because I'm going to invite a guest on today to expound on some learnings that I have been experiencing as the host of this program now for over two years. We now have taped over 150 episodes of On Leadership. And you would expect by having read over 150 books and having listened to these interviews, as well as the on-air and off-air insights that come from our guest, I've learned a few things. We try our best to make sure that the representation on this podcast for Franklin Covey, which is now the world's largest distributed and subscribed to weekly podcast in the world, thanks to you, we try to make sure the representation is broad, that we have a, an equal balance between men and women, that we have both global authors and business leaders, as well as US-centric thought leaders and celebrities and social media influencers, that the topics range from leadership development to building culture, executing strategy, business models, teaching facilitation skills, parenting, some educators, not-for-profit. And I've also, along the way, learned a few things around what white privilege means. You know, I'll tell you, six months ago, I wasn't quite sure what that term even mean. And then some of my friends, namely Stedman Graham and uh, Greg and others that were on the program, shared with me that you can still have white privilege and have worked hard. You can have white privilege and have been very successful on your own right, but there are some things that come with influence. And then a few months ago, I interviewed an author that wrote a book really about um, the genius in women. And in that interview and in the book that I read, I realized that when you ask yourself to name who are the top 10 geniuses in the world, most of us will name men. It isn't because there aren't women who are geniuses, it's because most of those geniuses, Einstein, Steve Jobs, whoever they were, for the last couple of centuries had male benefactors, whether it was Plato or Aristotle, whoever it was, these people generally had male underwriters, male funders, male benefactors, and very few of those male benefactors promoted women. It was a profound experience for me as I learned also through Ann Chow, who is a member of Franklin Covey's board of directors. She's a co-author of our next book, The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. And she now is the, um, the only female woman of color CEO in AT&T's nearly 50 year history. Ann Chow mentioned to me that one of the ways that I, as a white man in my 50s, who's a formal leader in a company, can help to build the genius of others, can lift up, is to use my platform to give other people a chance to talk and speak. And I've thought a lot about that. And all this, this opening I know is long, I want to make sure that Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast, of which I am perhaps the spokesperson for, but don't curate the guests in a vacuum, that our, our production team and that I make sure that this platform is a broad platform for like-minded people who can educate all of us on how to be better leaders, on how to be better parents, on how to be just more effective people. So today, I'd like to welcome as our guest a dear friend of mine, MJ Fiev, who is the editor and author of the new release from Mango Publishing, Badass Black Girl. MJ, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, MJ, the honor is all mine. You and I became friends several years ago because you are a senior acquisitions editor 
for what is now, by many standards, the fastest-growing independent publisher in the nation, Mango Publishing, out of Coral Gables, Florida. Mango has been a longtime partner with Franklin Covey. Um, you also happen to be the editor of my first book for the firm, Management Mess to Leadership Success. You are an author of numerous books. You have, um, I think in the last count, authored close to 13 books. You speak four languages. Originally, you are from Haiti. You live now in the greater Miami area. Uh, you are a prolific editor and author. You've written books. I think you said at last count in three and a half languages, so I'm interested to hear what the half language is. I'd love it, MJ, if you would talk a bit about what your journey has been to writing this book. We're going to talk broadly today about your experience, what it's like to have been a Haitian black girl moving to the U.S., what that was like. But first, would you just orient yourself to the listeners and viewers today around the world and a little bit of your journey about namely how you came to write this book, Badass Black Girl. Well, as you mentioned, Scott, I grew up in Haiti and I've always considered myself to be a nerd. I would read so, so many books. My life revolved around books. And one of the books that I was really into growing up was actually The Seven Habits of Highly effective teens, um, just to give you an idea of um, how, how into self-help and self-development I was, my sister and I, we kept track of our, um, of our readings. We had a competition. And one year, um, she beat me by two books, and she had read 562 books that year. That's how much reading we did. We did, and um, self improvement was definitely one of those book, one of those topics that I valued growing up. MJ, and, MJ, stop there for a moment because I think I've read the illiteracy rate in Haiti is one of the highest in the world. What is the literacy rate? I don't know the the exact number, Scott, but it's not looking good. Um, it's, uh, it's very, very low. The school system in Haiti is very problematic. Um, and as you know, it's a country with a lot of um, poverty and education plays a big part in the poverty. In the last time I checked, um, about 20% of the population could be considered literate, but- um, Right. I mean, there are so many different sources in terms of statistics and stuff like that, but... Um, I interrupted you because I wanted to know, with perhaps you know a 70-plus percent illiteracy rate in the, country, in the country, what inspired you and your sister to be prolific readers early on in life? Well, we come from a family of readers. My, my dad was a teacher. My mom taught college. Um, so we've always been surrounded by books. My, my dad was a lawyer. He had a practice for a little while, and then he chose to um, go into teaching instead because Haiti can be very unstable politically, and he just didn't want to um, have to deal with the courthouse anymore. So um, he was always reading, and that really inspired me to look into my own interest. At first, I was a reluctant reader, and I have to credit one of my sisters, Patricia, for really making sure that I 
got my daily reading done. And after a while, I just enjoyed it so much that um, we entered that competition. She would always win because she's she's much more passionate about reading than I am, if that's even possible. MJ, forgive me for interrupting you. You were on your journey about how you came to write Badass Black Girl. Yes, so reading all those um, extraordinary books, I was really inspired um, to really think about what it takes to have a life that matters, a life that has a purpose, a life where um, one can say, you know what, I'm happy. Life can be hard, but I'm doing the best that I can and I have moments of happiness. And for for me, that became particularly important when I noticed that a lot of those books were not really addressed to me. Um, I know it's a weird thing to say because those books were so powerful for me. But still, when I looked at the examples that were being provided, um, none of them really translated the experience of a Black girl, particularly a Black girl in the Caribbean. For instance, how do I deal with the fact that I'm not considered beautiful by the rest of the world? My parents might think I'm pretty. Uh, people in my environment, my friends might think I'm, I'm pretty, but the rest of the world doesn't think I'm pretty because when I'm looking at what the standards of beauty are, I'm not represented. How do I deal with bullying that has to do with who I am? If I'm being bullied for being black, for instance, how do I deal with that? There, there's a lot of examples in those books about how to build self-esteem and how to stand up for um, yourself, but there were specific cases that I wanted to be addressed that were not. What? How do you deal with self-hatred? Because very early on, um, society had taught me that I was inferior, that um, I was pretty for a black girl, that um, that my accomplishments were surprising for a black girl. I wanted to learn how to deal with, with that aspect of my life and those books were not available. So for the longest, I wanted to write a book. It was before I knew I was even going to be a writer, but I had it in me that I would need, not even if not through writing, I would need to teach young girls how to deal with some of what is thrown at them, young black girls, how to deal with um, self-esteem issues, how to deal with microaggressions um, before microaggressions were even called my microaggressions because now it's such a buzzword. So I became a teacher first and later when I felt equipped to really talk about those topics, I finally wrote the book about a subject that was so important to me. Thank you, MJ. MJ, I would consider you a dear friend. We met uh, close to three years ago. You are the senior editor of many of Franklin Covey's books that are now published through Mango. You are the editor of several of my books, including, I hope, many in the future. We're friends, right? When there's an earthquake in Utah, you text me and check on me. When there's a hurricane in Miami, I text you, I check on you. I, I, you would be at my house and I would be at your house if it weren't for the virus. 
beyond that, we have very little in common. I'm obviously a 52-year-old uh, white male. You are not. <laughs> you are much younger than I am. But I, as I have come to know you more in your journey, your journey could not be any different than mine, right? I was raised in an upper-middle-class family in the 70s in Florida. You were obviously raised in a very different environment. And as I have heard you on numerous podcasts and webcasts and interviews, I actually was really struck by your experience of what it was like to come to America as a black Haitian girl and face a very different culture. And by the way, you are not a lamenter. In fact, you corrected me yesterday off camera when you talked about it hasn't all been bad. There's been some great opportunities for you here. You've had some amazing experiences. Before we get into the book, Badass Black Girl, would you take a few moments and speak vulnerably to our audience on what it has been like? Because you have told me that you have met people that have treated you, have told you you are less as a person because of your race. That's not something you conjured up. These are real experiences that I can't even fathom as a white man. Would you take a few moments, a few minutes, and enlighten our audience? I'm going to guess who the majority of them are Caucasian. What it's been like to be um, a black girl and a black woman in America? Absolutely. My coming to America was a blessing. I love this country so much. I want to start by saying this because nowadays it seems to be so um, surprising whenever someone says, well, I love America. I really love this country because for me, it was the land of opportunities and it remains the land of opportunities. I loved my birth country, Haiti, but it is a complicated place to grow up with. And I sincerely couldn't wait to uh, to leave and come to America and just um, be able to focus on my goals and um, get where I wanted to be with my career because Haiti made it a little bit difficult for me to even imagine a life as a teacher or as a writer. So I left Haiti when I was 21. I had started med school in Haiti and I was really unhappy because I knew deep down inside that I was not meant to be a doctor. But in Haiti, there are specific careers that you're expected to embrace because the country is so um, complicated that parents want their kids to be able to succeed, to, to have all the odds in their favor. So you either become an engineer, a doctor, a nurse. Um, those are really um, the, the, the careers that they want you to embrace, maybe become an architect. So I went into uh, medicine and I was, I was not a happy camper. And when the opportunity came to finish my studies in the United States, I, I, I took it and I enrolled at Berry University to become a teacher because I was following the footsteps of my mom and dad and all my aunts and uncles. I have so many teachers in my family. And um, it was quite the experience. It was in 
all that I expected and nothing that I expected. <laughs> uh, what I mean by that is that I grew up watching American television, HBO and ABC. And I had this image of America that was what was curated by those TV channels. And when I got to the US, yes, a lot of it was true. But um, one thing that I wasn't prepared for is being a black girl in America, which is very different from being a black girl in the Caribbean. In the Caribbean, of course, you think about race because you know what's happening in the rest of the world. There is a lot of colorism in the Caribbean, which is um, prejudice against people of your own race based on um, how light or how dark your skin color is. So I knew all that. I knew that uh, people look closely at um, physical features to make a decision about you, but I wasn't prepared to be really in an environment where um, race mattered a lot. So um, I, I, I experienced a few of what we call microaggressions. And um, the thing about microaggression, the term is that when you look at the word micro, you say, oh, it's, not, it's nothing big. It's something you can live with. But really, microaggressions are serious because um, they, they affect you in a way that you, might, in, that you might not be aware of right away. So it's little things like um, people telling me, oh, wow, you're really smart for a Black girl or um, you speak very well for a Haitian girl. And little things like that, some of it having to do with my immigrant background, some of it having to do with my race. I remember, for instance, that my first semester in college, I, could, I, I had a hard time keeping up because I was studying in a new language. I had learned English in Haiti, but I had never been in an English-speaking environment. I, I had read books, I, I watched TV, but I never studied in English. So it was very hard for me to keep up with some of my classes. I ended up getting all A's except for that one class because the final exam um, was only 30 minutes and I just couldn't translate all the answers in my head in 30 minutes. And the teacher was gracious enough. She let me stay um, five to 10 minutes later. And at graduation, I graduated um, summa cum laude and my GPA was really high. And the teacher was at the graduation and she came to me and she told me, you know what? You got all A's at Barry except for my class where you got a B. I always assumed that you were lazy. I didn't realize that you were coming from another country and dealing with learning a new language. And um, I really started thinking about it and what it meant. And I started thinking, why would she think I'm lazy? I was always in class on time. I was always asking questions. And the only answer I could come, come up with when I looked at all the, the other students who were in the class who were not like me, they were all Caucasian, they were all, all non-immigrant, uh, which is very surprising for a class taking place in Miami, but 
that was the fact that she had assumed that I was lazy because I was different. And um, that was my first experience. And, you know, students had warned me about the race relations at, at the school, but because, well, it's Miami, everybody's from somewhere else. I did not take it seriously, but I really started thinking about, about it. Lazy, I would never call myself lazy because, um, I mean, coming from Haiti where life is so hard, you learn that education is the key. I've always taken education seriously and there was nothing really in my behavior that would have warranted the label lazy. So I was really surprised. And that was my first um, experience with um, covert racism. Then when I graduated, I, I was ready to, to go into the, to, to become a teacher, to go into the profession. And I had um, been doing an internship at the private school in Miami, and they loved me. The kids loved me, um, my co-teachers loved me, because as an intern, you're not just given a, a classroom, you have co-teachers. I volunteered in the morning for the car line, in the afternoon for the kids left behind who needed extra assistance with their work. So at the end of the internship, I'm so convinced that I'm going to get hired because there are um, openings. And I go to the principal and I, and I talk to her about the possibility of applying for the job. And she looked at me and she said, Michelle, I'm gonna tell you something. I don't want you to leave this room. And she tells me that parents had been calling her, asking her why there was a black woman in their kid's classroom. That they thought it was unacceptable and that I was um, confusing the kids because the only black people they knew was their nanny and that my presence was confusing and that I had an accent. And she said, some parents even called you the N word when they called. And that was, I think the most devastating thing that I could have uh, heard really because um, I'm a workaholic. So um, I've always made work the center of my life and hearing that I couldn't get a job because of my race. And she liked me so much that that one person, um, she was not, it wasn't a battle to fight, I guess. She was not willing to hire me anyway. It was a private school. They were funded by the parents and there's a lot of um, politics going into a private school, into the running of a private school, but it was devastating to me. I went home and all I could do was cry myself to sleep because I had given my all to that internship. I It was an unpaid internship. Um, it had lasted um, a year because they liked me so much. So it started as um, field experience and then they asked me if I could just make it um, a full internship. And I made it work despite the fact that um, 
in my, my last semester at school was extremely busy and I still had to work to make ends meet. So I would get two, three hours of sleep during the week because I was um, at work in the evening and I was in the internship during the day. I was working so hard and I had always learned. Um, and it's such a fallacy that hard work pays off. All you have to do to be successful is work hard. But I came to realize, no, I put my 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 soul into into school and into work, and I was not gonna get hired because of who I was. Two weeks later, I went to a career fair for teachers, and I got to work at the most wonderful school because of who I was. So there, there, you have the pros and you have the cons of, uh, of being black, right? I get there and the principal tells me, you remind me of my teacher who's leaving. Um, she was leaving the state and he was desperate because she had been so wonderful with the kids. He's like, you're hired. Just because I reminded him of another black person who had uh, been extraordinary look at my resume of course coming from Barry it was um, it was wonderful it's a it's a great school and the education program there is one of the best in South Florida so um, I had the qualifications yes but many other people had qualifications similar to mine I was a brand new teacher but he hired me because of who I was and also at Barry when I got my first job, um, I studied first, uh, uh, it, it was part of um, the student aid, it, I was a student aid, it was part of um, a, what comes with the package for student loans and uh, 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 everything you need to, to be able to fund college. So I was a student aid at first and then um, I was hired as a real employee by, um, by a department at the school. Um, I got a lot of favors from my supervisor because I was an immigrant and because I was black. She would be more flexible with my schedule and always say, you know what, she's gone through so much, just, just let her um, work, work the schedule that she can. And the other employees would be very unhappy about it because it was a form of favoritism. So I, I, I was experiencing both sides of the coins, right? Um, sure. Being rejected by some people because I was black and being embraced and, and receiving favors from others because I was black. MJ, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, it's touching. And I have a couple more I wanna ask you about. First, I wanna read a passage from your book um, provocatively named Badass Black Girl. We'll talk about that title in a few moments. Um, for those who are watching and listening, settle in for a second as I want you to hear these two pages that MJ has written, and then MJ, I want you to give some context for them. Can I touch your hair? Is that your real hair? Oh my God, I love your skin, hair, eyes, etc. Are you mixed? You're pretty for a black girl. You're not really black. I don't see color. Why don't you cook? Wow, you speak really white. Why you talk so proper? You don't talk black. You love Beyonce, right? 
Who's your favorite rapper? I didn't want to talk to you at first. You seemed angry. Why don't you smile? You're a pretty girl. Why can you say the N-word, but I can't? How do you feel about interracial relationships? Feminism isn't for black women. Who is Felicia? People like you read? But you're not like other black girls. Not everything is about race. Well, I'm basically black. I wish I could get as black as you are when I'm tan. My parents aren't racist, just old fashioned. Why is there no white history month? Why is hip hop so violent? Will you teach me how to twerk? But where are you really from? That wasn't racist, right? Shouldn't you see it as a compliment that your culture is appropriated? Are Beyonce and Jay-Z getting divorced? Do you wash your hair when it's like that? I thought all black girls had butts like Nicki Minaj. Why do black girls have big booties? I'll bet you have the best singing voice. Do you know how to make fried chicken? Why are you so aggressive? Why do black girls always have an attitude? You're my best black friend. Are your parents still together? Aren't all black people related? Why doesn't your name sound ethnic? Is that a weave? What is a weave? Why can't whites say white power? Are watermelons your favorite fruit? Why are black people so lazy? Why do blacks have their own channels? I have black friends, how could I be a racist? Did you come up from the ghetto? Why do you laugh when comedians make racist jokes? So MJ, this is the opening two pages of one of your chapters in the book. And of course, I couldn't help but want to know why you wrote this. Some of it's, you know, provocative. Some of it's relatable, regrettably. All of it is certainly um, worthy of discussion. Um, talk about that. Well, those are questions that we, Black people, we get all the time, or at least a version of some of those questions. And um, some of them have become part of a running joke about um, Black people. Some of them, of course, are a little bit more serious in terms of um, the questions about using the N-word or um, not under when people don't understand why there is a Black History Month or they, they ask about white power versus Black power. So um, I wanted to be able to put all those questions down to show the reader that we all get those questions. And the expectation is that they're reading those and they go, oh yeah, I get this all the time. So it's not just me, it's, it's just something that uh, a lot of black people experience. I mean, I get some of those questions all the time. Um, growing up, the, the you are pretty for a black girl. I mean, that's something I get all the time. I remember one time um, at work, not at Mango, it was before my time at Mango. So um, at one of my previous jobs, I'm sitting um, in the lunchroom, just having my lunch and other coworkers walk in and they have a conversation totally unrelated to me, but we're all at the table. 
and they're trying to remember who Marie is. And someone says, well, she works in this department. And someone else says, yeah, she's friends with so-and-so. And then someone says, yeah, she's that black woman who does this or who does that. And then someone says, oh, yeah, I know who she is. She's really pretty, really pretty for a black woman. And then she looks at me and she realizes what she just said. This idea, pretty for a black woman. And I'm talking about, I mean, um, grown people, adults. I'm not talking about those conversations that you have when you're in middle school and you don't know any better and you're still trying to figure out um, your place in the world. And it came so naturally to her. Um, she, she was expressing uh, a deep belief that black is not beautiful. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, it was just one of those instances where it's a microaggression. She's not willingly trying to hurt me, but she did. And I, I had to deal with those things throughout my life. They were uh, more damaging when I was younger, as I uh, became an adult and I learned strategies to um, cope with those sayings and those attitudes. They stopped hurting that much. And I think the purpose of the book is really to equip the reader with some of the strategies that I used because there was no toolkit for me to learn from. Oh, when you're having a con an uncomfortable conversation where someone is putting you um, in the spotlight because of your race, this is how you act. I didn't have that. And I really wanted to be able to share some of my experiences with people who might not have what they need to be able to deal with those um, situations. One thing that I've always been told growing up is that, oh, wow, you, you have so much strength. And I was lucky. I'm looking at my young self and I, I, I had this fierceness about me. It's a personality thing. It's not a race thing. It's not a, a female thing necessarily. So it's just, it's your personality. I would probably be fierce if I was born male as well, or if my parents had had the, the exact same personalities they, they um, do and did and ra raised me in another country. It's just who we are. I, I've always been fierce. But not everybody is born fierce. And some of our girls need to know what to do in certain situations. I figured it out for myself, but you hear um, so many sad stories these days. If you Google it, if you, if you haven't been watching the news and you want to look it up, look at how many suicides there have been recently involving Black kids under the age of 15. This is crazy to me. It, it, it's totally crazy to me that a kid under 15 might consider suicide because they don't feel appreciated. They feel that their very being is being put into question. The value of who they are, who they were born as, is being put into question. So um, I wanted to equip 
younger people, give them what they need to be able to um, face the world we live in right now. Um, race, again, is um, center stage in the news right now. Um, a lot of good things are happening. A lot of worse things are happening. So I wanted to add my voice to the conversation. The book actually came out um, way before Black Lives Matter started being um, a, a huge topic of conversation, but everything that's been happening in terms of um, the protest and the larger conversation through, uh, throughout the nation about race, about um, white privilege, like as you mentioned earlier, um, systemic racism, um, all, all this showed that my, my book was definitely needed because we're talking about race today, we'll still be talking about race in 10 years, in 20 years, because it's a conversation that needs to keep happening and change, change needs to keep happening too. Oh, MJ, your book took Amazon by storm this summer. And when I read it, although I'm not a badass black girl, nor am I trying to become one, it was, uh, it was a very enlightening read for me to experience what these young girls are facing, which is not my own journey. I can't even relate to it. In fact, you've actually gotten some pushback on the title. There's been some vitriol, some hate spewed your way about the title of reinforcing perhaps stereotypes or why did you call it a badass black girl? Why, why did you name the book that and what's been the experience, maybe good and bad, from, from readers? So um, ever since the book came out, I have been um, receiving some backlash, up a, particularly on social media because that, that's where people feel- The most uh, courageous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the question is always, why am I being so divisive? Why didn't I just write a book called Badass Girl? Why does it have to be Badass Black Girl? And a lot of it comes from a place of ignorance, of course, because people don't understand my experience because they're not me. They haven't walked in my shoes. They don't understand that uh, growing up, I didn't see myself in books unless it was a book about colonial times where uh, the character who looked like me was a slave or um, later on when I became um, a young adult and I started reading books by for adults by um, Haitian writers, male and female, where I could see uh, myself, I could see my life. Books for young adults did not include black characters except for a few. Um, and in those books, I did not necessarily have access to them. Um, and the, the black characters were always typecast. They, they played specific roles. They were uh, the, talk, the token black friend, or um, they were the, a, the voodoo priestess in, in some of the stories. There was never an average middle-class black, black girl just going about her life and um, becoming of age. Nothing like that. In movies, the same thing. Um, there, there was always that one black friend. She was always loud and always funny. I'm not a funny person. 
I, I couldn't relate to most of what was on TV, most of what was in the books. And as I said, a lot of the issues that I wanted to, to be able to discuss, they were not addressed in your traditional uh, mainstream self-empowerment books. What do I tell the principal who doesn't want to hire me because parents have been calling me the N word and I'm making their kids uncomfortable because I'm different and they, they, all they can think about is my otherness? Or what do I do when I'm bullied at school because um, I'm black and people are questioning um, my, my very name because um, we black people really like names that reflect our ancestry? How do I deal with those things? I it, wouldn't it be weird to have a book called Badass Girl when what I want to discuss is everything that has to do with being black. And those issues are of no interest to someone who's not black. Well, some of what I talk about can, is universal, but a lot of what I talk about is black specific. Sure. And for someone not to be able to understand that, well, um, it, at first I was having um, some of those conversations. And, you know, some people really do come from a place of ignorance and they were open to having that conversation with me. But a lot of people are just being annoyed because they want the status quo. They want things to be the way um, they were growing up where race wasn't acknowledged. And they're just mad that there are books that are geared specifically toward black people. And at first I started deleting some of those comments on my social media because some of them were very, very um, disturbing um, racist attacks. For instance, um, there was this one person who was complimenting me on my writing, calling me a master writer. And some random person commented, oh, did you say Masa? Kind of um, implying that I'll never be anything else than a slave. And someone else recently made the, the exact same joke. Someone else complimented me on my work and someone random said, oh, did you say master? And um, those I used to delete. And, Last week, I decided I'm not deleting them anymore because I'm, I'm kind of complicit in this situation if I'm not exposing it. So I've been leaving those comments. People have been having very um, aggressive discussions about race. Um, it, it's not nice at all, but the book was needed. And I've received messages, a lot of messages from parents and from readers too, telling me that that's the, the most needed book right now because they don't always know how to address some of those issues that I cover in the book. Well, MG, I can tell you Franklin Covey is honored to give you the platform on this podcast to talk about your journey, talk about the insights of what it's been like to be on the receiving end of a lot of uh, positivity and joy and some vitriol. We're honored to be associated with you as the editor of many of our 
recent and future books. The genius that you have bought, brought to our manuscripts is uh, 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 disproportionate. We owe you a lot. What you've given to us is far more than we'll ever give to you. Our time is ending, but I want to end with you sharing and recreating the story you did yesterday with me as you were talking about today's interview. Uh, you shared a story that, to me, sounded more like the 1950s than it did the 2020s. Would you recreate the short story about a friend of yours whose relative was looking for an editor, and when they discovered you were available, they had an opinion about this? It's not a long time ago story. Would you recreate that? Because I think it's so visceral that all of us need to hear this and be really mindful about our own prejudices and our own unconscious biases. So I was telling this story to a friend of mine who's a very gifted writer and an excellent developmental editor. And she wants to start a freelancing gig. She wants to be a, become a freelancer and really devote time to editing because she's really good at it. So she was asking me about my experience because in addition to the work that I do at Mango Publishing, I also run um, a writing and arts company with my husband and I give her some pointers, but I told her when it came to marketing, um, I told her about my experience with um, getting new clients and marketing um, the company, making sure that people are aware of its existence. Every single one of my clients has been recommended by somebody else. We don't run traditional marketing ads. I mean, we've done it in the past just for uh, brand awareness, really. Mm -hmm. But all our clients are people who come to us because their friend or their cousin, their mother told them about the services that we offer and how great we are. Most of our clients are really, really satisfied with the work we do. And I told her that there's a reason why we do not do traditional marketing. When I started spending good money on marketing, I realized that people were turned off by the fact that I was black. And some of them were really straightforward with it. They're like, well, I want to be I want to work with a real American. Part of it, of course, has to do with the fact that I am black, but I'm also an immigrant, meaning that um, there is this additional layer of otherness about me. Um, but some of it just has to do with the fact that black people are seen by many um, individuals as untrustworthy. Uh, we probably don't know what we're doing, or we're lazy, we're probably not going to respect the deadlines. You have all those stereotypes playing against you when you're trying to be um, an editor as a Black person. Um, some people come to me, again, um, because they are recommended, um, I, I am recommended to them. And there, there is this one client that I've been working with for the longest time. She comes to me whenever she wants to have a new piece published because she's like, I don't want to um, have to worry about the editing aspect of the piece. I know that if you review it, it's ready to be published. All I have um, to do is find a venue that will actually publish your work, but it will be ready to be published. 
So she she um, told me, well, you know what? My dad needs an editor. I'm going to refer you to him because he has a very serious story that he has to tell and he wants to work with someone who can really help him with developmental. And I said, no problem. So I'm waiting for her to get back to me. Um, she never does. And finally I asked her about it because she had been mentioning it for quite some time. And I wanted to be able to work on my schedule depending on when he would need my services. And she comes back to me and she's super embarrassed. And she says, well, my dad went on your website. He looked at you and he said, I want to work with somebody else. And I'm like, well, you know, there are many editors out there. And she, she was almost crying. She's like, you don't understand. He said specifically doesn't want to work with a black woman. And she was really upset because part of it was embarrassment. She never thought that a dad would say something like that. And I was upset because I think she, because she was upset, it kind of, uh, she kind of <laughs> affected the way I was feeling. But my husband was comforting me and he said, well, what is new? Why are you upset about this? It happens all the time. And it made me feel validated the fact that I didn't even have to tell him those things. He was noticing. Um, I'll, I'll mention it in passing that he's Caucasian and um, he has the kind of insight that sometime, sometimes I don't get from other Caucasian people who are completely unaware of what it's like to be a black person. But He's been with me for so long and he cares about me. So he notices things and he says, well, I, of course I know this, that people will meet with you and they'll be surprised because they don't expect you to be who you are. They've been um, referred to you by somebody and then they get on Zoom and they're like, oh my God, uh, that's not the picture I had whatsoever of um, this editor. So um, I told my friend about that and you have to grow a thick skin as a black woman. I mean, you, you could Google all those articles about diversity in publishing, representation in the publishing world. I mean, um, those issues are real. Yeah, and no, it's not the 1950s, it's 2020. And I still deal with it all the time. I mean, I had to tell myself, you're good. So if someone cannot deal with it because they they can get over their own issues with race, well, they are lost. I, I, I do believe that the people who, who, who have to come to me will come to me. I'm, I'm never sad when I lose a client. I used to be, it used to be very upsetting. In this specific case, which was very recent, I got upset because my my client was upset, and she uh, we had a good talk about how how she she had been a little naive about the 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 way the world works, and it was a learning opportunity for her, an upsetting one because it came from someone she cares about, 
And I realized, oh, I need to keep working on that thick skin because sometimes they're all cracks. And uh, I, don't, I don't want any of that for sure. MJ, your genius is palpable. I have become a best-selling author because of the love and the care and the attention that you put into the first book that I published for Franklin Covey, Management Mess, Leadership Success. You were so loving and patient and firm and inquisitive about my own journey as a leader. You are now the editor of my next book coming out, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Your, 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 uh, your energy and your positivity and your abundance is palpable. I'm delighted to have been able to feature you today. And like I said earlier, Franklin Covey's books are better because of your thumbprint on, the, on them. Tell us quickly as we end, minute or less, what is next for you? After a badass black girl took uh, Amazon by storm right now, what's next on your docket? Well, we're turning badass black girl into a brand, and I'm so, so excited about that. Um, we're officially launching the website badassblackgirl.com um, in October. We, we do have uh, some stuff on it already, but it's, um, it's getting a, de a design and I'm, I'm really excited. I have three books coming out in the next year or so, all part of the Badass Black Girl brand. I have Badass Black Girl Affirmations coming out in January. I have a book that I wrote for parents from a um, teacher point of view. Uh, raising confident and empowered black kids coming out in April, the month of my birthday. So I'm looking forward to that. And the Badass Black Girl book of resilience is coming out later next year. So um, a lot of great things coming your way, Scott. MJ, we are delighted for your success. If you're not connecting with MJ, Fiev on Facebook or LinkedIn, do so immediately. You'll be um, much better off by doing so. MJ, thank you for your time today for joining us on On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott. Always a pleasure to see you. Uh, what a rich conversation. Uh, you gotta buy the book because although it may or may not be where you are or where your girls are or where your neighbors are, it will definitely enlighten you to the journey that many young girls, black girls are facing in America and how all of us can be a better germinator, a better pollinator, a better model of what all of us want to see in society by leading up, by providing a platform for others to live the American dream and from no matter where you live, to live the dream that all of us have is to be heard, to be respected, to be loved, and uh, to be successful in life. We're honored that you joined us today. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, do so by visiting franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. Uh, subscribe. It comes out in every possible podcast platform. We'd love to have you rate it and review it as well. And we'll see you back here next week for a new guest on leadership.